Thank you, Nick. And I had had, uh, before we jump into the sermon, had two things that I wanted to address, and Nick did one of those for me by mentioning it was Memorial Day, and uh, thankful for that. The second thing is um, next week um, we will begin kind of the summer schedule for the kids, and that means that uh, children, and I think I have this right, five years old and up will be in the service with us. And uh, two or three things I want to say to this. One is, let's as a body be patient and welcoming to these uh, little ones. This is a good thing. It's, it shows vibrancy and life in a church. Um, the reason that we do this uh, is not just to give workers uh, a break, although that's a good thing, but the reason we do this is that um, our philosophy is that we are wanting to teach, um, we have this long view, we're wanting to teach young people how to be church members. And so there's no better way to do that than to have them in the service, partaking of the service. And so, um, so just as that is going on uh, this summer, be patient. Uh, and, and, and I would say even take a step further and celebrate uh, the kids being in here with us. Now, one of the reasons that's important uh, jumps right into where we are in our text this morning in, in Romans chapter 16. Uh, One of the reasons it's important to grow our children up in the admonition of the Lord and to have them partaking in the the service and hearing good, uh, solid teaching is because of what Paul warns us about in our text this morning. As Nick read and you heard, uh, Paul is warning the church, uh, the churches in Rome, about false teachers. And one of the things we know, if you've read the Bible... One of the things you know is that there have always been false teachers in and around the people of God. In the Old Testament, we have stories of false teachers. We have warnings about false prophets. We have um, um, laws given on how to handle false prophets in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, almost in every epistle, and Jesus speaks in the Gospels of false teachers as well, and in the epistles, uh, we have... Um, noting about what to do with false teachers all throughout many of the letters that have been written. And I just want to highlight a couple of those. In 2 Corinthians, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, it says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. And then again in Second uh, Peter, in Second Peter chapter two, uh, there is a stark warning there as well. Sorry, my placeholders are not cooperating with me. But in Second Peter chapter two, uh, listen to the first three verses. But false prophets also arose among the people, notice this, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned, and their greed will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 
we could go on and on and on this morning. You know, the book of Galatians is written about false teachers. And in Timothy, we have Paul um, talking with Timothy and warning him in First and Second Timothy about the dangers of false teachers. And, and th- this is vitally important. This is on Paul's mind. It's vitally important. And it's vitally important because the gospel is at stake. This same gospel that Paul said in the beginning of the book of Romans, in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And what we see is as the church is formed, as the church is spread, as the gospel has gone out, that right behind the spread of the gospel is heresy and false teachers. Now, thankfully... We don't have to worry about that in today's day and age, do we? You don't have to turn the radio dial on for very long or the TV set on for very long or go to a Christian bookstore and browse very far before you begin to run into false teaching. And so this word that Paul is is giving to the churches here at Rome is very, very, very relevant to us, And I think Paul's main point as he is warning the Roman church, the, the, uh, the false teaching had not come in yet, I don't think, but what he is warning them is this, not every Christian teacher is legitimate, or not every person who puts themselves out as a Christian teacher is a legitimate Christian teacher. Just because someone uses Christian words or uses the name of Christ or may even say uh, the word gospel does not mean that they are truly Christian, does not mean that they are truly expounding the gospel, and does not mean that they are truly leading people into righteousness. And so Paul here is coming and warning these churches. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that, you know, as we have, as we have for the past three years navigated our way through the book of Romans, you know, the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans can really be laid out uh, Paul's, um, Paul's view of the gospel. I'm doing this very simplistic. 12 through 15 is the kind of, so now what? Now that you've understood this, now what? How should we live? And then in chapter 16, he has this, as Gary preached on a couple of weeks ago, these lists of names of greet all these people. Then we have this warning, and then we have the ending. And so it's kind of an odd place for this. And I think the reason that Paul penned it here is because he's wanting this church, these churches who read this letter to take note and to remember it. He's, wanting, he's, he's laid out all this doctrine, all this idea about how Christian living should, should be manifested throughout the people. And then he, he puts it here so that they won't forget it, so that they will remember it. So it'll stick out to them. He loves them and he doesn't want them to tolerate or be lured away by false teachers. Now, so we're going to see this morning how to, how to handle uh, false teachers. And, and one of the things that's interesting is, uh, as, as I've gone about in my Christian life and in Christian ministry, uh, as often the case, I see most people making two uh, fatal errors when it comes to heresy and false teachers, and they tend to be the extreme of one another. So, so one of those is this. There's this philosophy, and you, you'll hear it. So 
Um, sometimes if, 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 if I've been in a group where a false teacher is brought up, there will be somebody within that group that will say, look, you know, all these divisions, all this fighting, we just need to have peace. We all just need to get along. You know, he, he or she's a good person. You know, I'm sure they're misunderstood. I'm sure they really don't mean what they're saying over and over and over and over again. And what Jesus really wants is for us to all just kind of get along. And so what happens is, is that the false teaching in the heresy is kind of ignored and it's allowed under the tent of Christianity and it's like a cancer and it just grows and it spreads. So that's one extreme. That truth is not stood for. The other extreme, and we've got to be careful of this, is that every disagreement that happens within a church or within a Christian setting, that within every one of those disagreements, somebody on the opposing side has to be a false teacher. So now all of a sudden, where every debate becomes this massive critical thing, so that if you don't, uh, if, if you don't line up on what you degree, agree, uh, uh, believe about sovereignty or election, well, somebody's a false teacher. Or the whole baptism thing, you know, is it okay to baptize infants? Is believer's baptism the only way? That all of a sudden somebody's a false teacher. And I've seen people take this to such an extreme. I've seen this over and over and over again. That at the end of the day what happens is that the only person in this person's life who's not a false teacher is himself. And he ends up literally starting his own church in his basement where only his family will go. Because everybody else is a false teacher. (laughs) That's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here this morning. It's not what he's talking about. In fact, um, so so we want to stay away from that that, that narrow view. Uh, We want to stay away from both of these. And so the key today is for us to be able to identify what is false teaching and how can the church protect its members and its people against that. So let's jump into the text this morning and look at verse 17. And notice the strong language that Paul is using. He says, now I urge you, brethren. And so he's he's, he's coming in with strong language. He's saying, I implore you, take this seriously, do this. And he tells us to do two things. The first thing he says is, brethren, keep your eye on. Other translations uh, may say to watch out for. Still, other translations may say to mark. All those are really good words. The idea here in the Greek is um, the the idea that there's a tower or a structure in which somebody is on top of and they're looking out for enemies that may be coming to invade. So they're watching out for it. They're marking. So I, I can just imagine in my own mind of them seeing the enemy and them marking them and saying, okay, there they are, here they come. The word in Greek is the same word we get from, uh, that we use for like scope, like on a gun. Now, it's not saying you shoot them, so let's not take that too far. But it's, it's that same word in, in, in battle and in war, and to protect oneself, a scope has been used to be able to see the enemy advancing so that we will know that they're coming and can prepare for that. So the first thing it says is keep an eye on, watch out for them, mark them. The second thing it tells us, uh, and different translations put these words in different order here, but in the NASB it's at the end, 
It says, and turn away from them, or to literally to bend away from them, to avoid them. The point here is don't entertain false teaching. Don't let them stick around. Uh, Run from them. Turn away. Get away from them. So watch out for Mark and turn away. And Paul tells us who we're supposed to be turning away and marking. uh, and, and, And in this verse, here's what he says. In verse 17, Paul says, those who cause dissension and hindrances. Now, if he would have just left it there, then that first example of the wrong way to handle false teachers would have been, oh, that this is the way to go. Any type of conflict we want to avoid at all costs. The problem with that is that um, many of our... Jesus caused dissensions and conflict. The apostles caused dissensions and conflict. All throughout church history, some of the greatest movements that we've had that have led to God-honoring, God-glorifying things has been through dissensions and conflict. Martin Luther was a tad bit contentious. And so, thankfully, Paul gives us a qualifier here. And his qualifier is very important. Those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. Contrary to the teaching which you learned. So what Paul is telling these believers at Rome is that you have been taught well. The gospel has come to you. You have heard the message. You're you're, you're doing well. So anybody who comes to you who is teaching or preaching something that is contrary to what you have learned, watch out for them, mark them, stay away from them. Now, Paul doesn't get specific here. You know, I don't know if he's imagining that the, the Judaizers are on their way into town or if there's some sort of Gnostic heresy that's on its way. We don't know, but what we do know is Paul says, he goes back to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Again, he's not talking about mere differences of opinion about teaching. If he did, uh, then we'd all be in trouble. Today, as we speak, Gary is at Mountain Fellowship, which was a plant of North Shore Presbyterian, preaching. And he's preaching today on believers' baptism through immersion. Just teasing. He's not. (laughs) If that were the case, we'd all be there. (laughs) That's an example of a disagreement and a pastor, Jimmy, saying, Gary, I love you. I love what you stand for. Come on in and and teach our people. Next week, I'm going to be at the Little Brown Church uh, teaching. And the Little Brown Church is a a, a little church up here that in the summertime holds meetings. And there are people that differ on theological issues within that church. But we can all come together under the auspice of what binds us, and that's the gospel. That's the the clear principles of the faith. That's why we recite creeds, is that the creeds are an effort to put the clear essentials of the faith in written form so that we can recite them together and learn, hey, here's what unites us, the clear teaching of the apostles. So notice, Paul goes on and talks about these teachers. 
in verse 18. It says, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. Some of your translations may say of their own bellies. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Notice what it is saying here is they don't serve the Lord. They're serving their own belly. So instead of their work, their teaching, promoting and being about the glory of God, of magnifying Christ and the work that Christ has done on the cross for us, that we were dead in our sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love, loved us with such a love that He came and died for us. And so instead of teaching in that way and magnifying Christ, what these folks are doing is that they're coming in and they're using this platform to serve their own belly. And what he's not meaning is that by doing this they get to go to a buffet or a pavilion day and literally feed themselves. What he's meaning, the words here mean their own appetite, their selves. So they are very self-serving. The glory they're seeking is for themselves. And that these folks are coming into the church and they're ravaging the church. You know, we saw at the beginning of Romans, you know, and and I've used this several times throughout our study of Romans, that one definition of sin that we could hang on to, uh, it was found in Romans 1.21, they did not serve and glorify God as God, but they exchanged that glory for something else. And then, Later on in verse 25, it talks about um, they begin to follow their own passions, talking about um, um, sinners, uh, talking about humanity. And here we have these false teachers, and all that's going on is that these are just wolves and sheep clothing, doing the same thing of not giving God the glory and honor He deserves, but using this platform to give themselves glory. And Paul is saying they appear to be believers. And so we need to watch out for them. And the dangerous thing, the dangerous thing, and we see it here in our text, we see in, in Philippians the same word of, as uh, being as they uh, uh, were after their own belly or their own appetite is used. And there it says their end is their destruction. And here we see the same thing. If we looked in verse 20, it says that Satan will be crushed and that our feet will be upon them in victory, one of the things that this is saying is that the end for these false teachers is destruction. And so this is vitally important because all who follow in the way of this false teaching are in peril of destruction. These false teachers. Now, one of the things that's interesting, um, one way I think that you can... um, kind of understand if somebody is a false teacher, of course, first and foremost, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, is that they're teaching something contrary or against uh, the, the Bible. Uh, another way is if you just continue to observe them and watch what the fruits of their ministry, what, what that looks like, then one of the things, if you look long enough, here's what you'll find. If somebody is a false teacher and at the, at the end of the day what they're really doing is promoting themselves and they're really money hungry, then what, you, then what happens is, is that as they are successful as a false teacher, they build their wealth. 
And so you have, it's not all pastors who are driving Ferraris, but you have pastors and leaders of organizations that have two or three homes that are worth multi, multi, multi-million dollars, driving Ferraris, scooting around on private jets. Uh, I, there was, there was uh, well, I'll just name him. Um, uh, there, there's a story that was confirmed about uh, Benny Hinn was on his way to a vacation, stopped somewhere in Germany at a famous chocolate place, and spent $15,000 on chocolate for the two-hour flight. You follow around long enough, you understand at the end of the day where their passion is. Uh, another example of this is if, if their goal is self-promotion and power, then you'll see what happens to the, number one, it's called their ministry, not God's ministry or Christ's ministry, their ministry. What happens is that that organization uh, is a kingdom building for the false prophet or false teacher so that um, you get these really odd things like you can only read certain books certain books that the author's last name starts with a B-E-L <laughs> right so, and this, it's clear to see once you watch the fruit of this ministry of, and, and if you can if you get a glimpse into these people's personal lives what their goal is and I, and I want to give two examples that I've experienced personally, um, and I know this happened in the life of this church when it was smaller. One of the things that happens with smaller churches is I think that false teachers uh, view an opportunity with smaller churches, that they can kind of come in and gain power. And so when I was at Crossroads and we used to have Wednesday night services, about once a year, somebody would come in and they'd be so nice and kind and they'd be just happy that they had found us and then we'd start our Bible study, then the hand would start going up. And after about the second or third time, it's like, oh. So they had an agenda. They had this, they, they, they were attempting to build their kingdom. They were attempting to gain status and power. And they were attempting to take over the church in front of your face. <laughs> one of the, and, and this, this group didn't try to take over Crossroads, but one of the worst examples of this was there was a ministry, ministry near us. And, uh. Uh, they came in with flattering words of, we want to help the poor, we have bought these houses, we want, a home. You know, we want to provide a home for them, and we want to provide good Christian teaching. And as things rolled out, all of a sudden these warning signs started coming in. One is, is that the leaders of this ministry called themselves apostles. The other thing is that there was no accountability to this ministry. And then the icing on the cake was when the... Uh, and God bless this woman because she saved our heinies. Uh, she, she owned um, the biscuit barn. The, I don't know if you've been on Rossville Boulevard. Praise God, eat a biscuit. She loved us. We would have our staff meeting there. And uh, she came in one day and she said, You know those guys that have been hanging around your church? They're polygamists. I'm like, No. Sure enough, yes. <laughs> So what you saw is all of that false teaching was leading to this structure to where they were the apostles. They were the authority. And then they started taking from these homeless people. And what they were taking was not silver and gold, but they were taking from them. Another just uh, example, and this is one of my favorite stories. There's a man that, um, and I won't go all into the story for the sake of time, but he's... 
dear believer, and uh, so every, every now and then I'll see him out and we'll just talk about the Lord and love this guy, just a very committed, good, godly Christian man. And uh, he's a good old boy, loves to hunt and fish, and so that's what we'll talk about a lot. And uh, he told me, one time we got talking about something, and he told me, he said, you know when I was a new believer, uh, I almost joined two cults. Literally, he was like on the bus to a commune twice in his life as a young believer. And what he talked about was that he loved the Lord, he had been saved, he loved Jesus, and somebody had come along and said, hey, if you really love Jesus, we've got this nice farm. (laughs) And you all wear the same clothes. You know, had sold him on this bill of goods. And what was going on, like we see in many of the documentaries, is that this leader of this commune becomes a Messiah figure, a prophet figure, and it's boasting them up in their pride. So it still goes on today. And so one of the things we need to know, and Paul points out in our text, is how in the world do people get swept away? And notice again in verse 18, they get swept away by smooth and flattering speech. They deceive the heart's of the unsuspecting. Now this trick is as old as humanity itself. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, I just want you to hear this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it unless lest you die. And the serpent said, Woman, you surely will not die. For God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. And then notice this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it and ate and she also gave it to her husband. False teaching from the very get-go. Satan, Satan, under the guise of wanting to help Adam and Eve become more like God, was crafty, crafty and crappy, deceptive. And notice what he was playing on. He was playing on this flattery of the senses. This fruit looked good. And so... One of the things that I want to ask this morning, and I want to get practical in two or three places, really practical in two or three places, but one of the things that I want to spend a little bit of time on is this. What makes someone simple or unsuspecting? Because as a church, as we see, as we see in this verse, in verse 18, that the flattering and smooth speech will deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, what we need to do is be able to identify what makes someone unsuspecting, or other translations say simple, so that we can help them, so that when these false teachings come, or when they hear it on the internet, or on the radio, or read a book, they can get it and stay away from it. And so one thing is this. One thing that makes somebody unsuspecting is a new believer. A new believer, most of the time, does not have the knowledge, does not have the knowledge of God's Word, does not have the mind built into them yet where they are able to discern this real well. This is why nowhere in the Bible does it say 
hey, go preach the gospel and then leave them on their own. The message of the Bible is as we, we're not making converts, we're making disciples. So that we as a church are supposed to be involved in the life of the new believer, helping them, protecting them, helping them grow, walking through life together with them so that they can grow in, in where they need to, to grow in the admonition and in, in the knowledge of the Bible and of the Lord. Uh, the, the other place is that, uh, and this is rampant um, among our generation as well, the other thing that makes people simple and unsuspecting is that those who haven't been taught well. And think about this. Many people have not been taught how to read the Bible. One of the reasons why we do, one of the many reasons why we do things the way we do on Sunday mornings and preaching verse by verse through the Bible is because we believe that God wrote, that God inspired the Bible to be written in books, letters, uh, this sort of thing. And so what we're doing by preaching this way is trying to help you put together the theme and the narrative of the books so that when you read a verse, you'll see the context of the verse. That you'll see how this verse relates to this particular book, how this verse uh, relates to the rest of the Bible as a whole, so that you will grow in your knowledge of yourself how to read the Bible, so that when you go home and hopefully are reading the Bible yourself, you'll begin to understand, oh, there is a way to read the Bible that will help me learn not only just random verses that can be taken out of the context, but help me learn how to read the Bible in such a way where these verses are put into context so I'll know what they mean so that when somebody comes and says something, we're able to say, oh, that's not true. I was very mean um, when I was younger and taught, I've shared this story many times, but uh, I was where, where in Indiana where I was helping the youth. I was asked during the kids' vacation Bible school, the, uh, um, the teenagers in the evening would have a message. And so we were doing a message on the Ten Commandments, and it was, uh, children, obey your parents and the Lord. And so what I did is I went and I got all the verses uh, that I could find where it talked about um, you have to hate your mother and father if you're going to be my disciple, like verses like that. And I put them on little, typed it out, put it on little strips, and I had kids read it. Just boom. You know, little Johnny, read. Oh, yeah. You know, who is my mother? Yeah, that's another good one, you know. And so they were looking... Half of them were like, what's going on here? I love my parents. The other half were like, yes. They were ready to get on the bus and follow me to the farm, you know. And what I was te- what the, the whole point of what I wanted to teach these kids is that you've got to know how to read the Bible. The context of these verses make a difference. So those who are not taught well, those who who don't know how to, to truly study and learn from God's Word, the other group that I think makes folks simple and susceptible are those who make decisions about truth solely based on emotion. How many of you have been around someone where there's been a teaching involved and they come out and they are saying that was a great and true teaching because it made me feel a certain way? That's not to say that truth and gospel doesn't come with feelings, but it's truth and gospel with feelings that we want, not error. And so sometimes people are, are blown to and fro because they, all of their decisions about what is truth is based on emotions. 
Now, so we've talked about what may make someone simple, and I just we could I I, I thought about doing an in-depth study on this, but uh, for time's sake, and this is not the place for it. But I also wanted to talk about what makes someone a false teacher. And, and we could do a psychological profile pretty quickly um, by looking at false teachers um, over time. But at the end of the day, what really makes someone a false teacher is a, is a real sense of narcissism. Uh, that is a sense of that, uh, an inability to think outside of that I'm the most important person here. Uh, someone who loves the praise of man. Someone who, who the way that they view the world is how can this benefit me? How can this benefit me? So when they see the church, and so think about this, when they see the church, what they see is, oh, there is a structure here. And within this church, oh, you know, people really look at uh, someone who's a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or an elder or whatever, they look at that as an authority figure. And so what they say inside of them is, how can I get that? And so they use that structure to come in, to come in and to do some false teaching to promote themselves and to promote their own belly, to promote their own narcissism. And part of the problem is that many churches are set up in such a way to where this is a very easy thing to do. Some churches are set up in such a way that the leadership is viewed as almost godlike, which is a very dangerous thing for a lot of different reasons, but this is another one of those reasons. There's no accountability. And so if a false teacher weaves his or her way in there, they can rise to power and have everything that their hearts desire. And this has happened over and over and over again. So, so how do we protect from this. And in verse 19 it tells us, For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be, here's how we protect against it, that we are to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. You must know good teaching. The teaching you've learned today, as we would say the teaching that we've learned, we're looking at God's Word. You must know this teaching This is not a standard, this is not a norm, but this is the norm. Everything that we hear that is taught under the guise of um, being Christian, we must filter through this word to judge accurately whether or not it's correct or incorrect. We've got to do this. And so this this is our filter. So, most false teachers... In our day and age, and there are whole churches and uh, whole sects of uh, religion that are based upon this, they do one of two things. One is is that they have received a new revelation. And it's all over the place. They've received a new revelation, and so what happens is that they're adding to this word. Other groups that are spreading false teaching um, philosophize, philosophize, whatever the word is, away. And so they're detracting, they're cutting from, they're taking away, they're taking things out of context. They're saying, well, that really doesn't mean that. And so there goes their false teaching. 
The people who let the Word of God stand and stand under that Word, and the churches that do that, have the steadiest platform to guard against false teaching. And so I want to give you five things uh, very quickly that I think uh, help uh, as a church protect against that. Number one, that, you, that we teach and preach the Word as the Word, the whole counsel of God. We teach and preach the Word as the Word. That's, again, why we go verse by verse. Number two, the teaching and preaching is evaluated. Many of you may not know this, um, and the best group in our church about this is that our, our women's group, our um, ladies' group, everything they want to teach, they send to the elders. And, and it's, it's, we trust them, and so it's, it's never really been a problem but it's filtered through the elders. Our children's curriculum, what we're doing in our youth, the elders look over that so that we can say, okay, this is in, in line with the Word and it's okay to teach. The other thing is, is guess who is responsible for what Gary and I say from this pulpit? The elders. There's a structure in place. Gary and I are just one of many. We are, not a, uh, uh, we are one among equals. We're not any position, and so the elders have free reign to come in and say, hey, listen, um, that's not good. (laughs) Another point here is that we encourage the Word, not our own thoughts and opinions about what you need, that that the encouragement always goes back to the Word. Fourth, that at Single Mountain Bible Church, that we are a place that encourages growth, encourages that, that we're a place where you can ask questions. One of the things that I have just, it's just big on my heart over the years as I have met with folks, is that they've been in situations in churches, in environments, in Bible studies where they don't feel like they can ask questions. And if you can't ask a question and get a question answered, you don't grow. So we need to be a place that, that, that allows for that, that people can ask questions and can go deeper in the Word and Lastly, and maybe most importantly, that we view our authority as a church is Christ. Christ is the head of the church. I, um, again, when I was at Crossroads, there was a, um, a pastor who came to us that was from a church that was a, uh, uh, and I won't name the ethnicity, but it was an, an ethnic church. He was just devastated and hurt, and he had gotten kicked out of the church as an associate pastor because the, the pastor was preaching a sermon series on, literally preaching a sermon series on the pastor as the head of the church. And he kept going and saying, well, wait a minute, like I'm not talking about church structure here, but Christ is the head of the church. And there, an argument ensued, and they fired him. So this is a big point. We as church leadership, are always submitting to the Word of God, to Christ. He is our head. This is not a church about Gary, Lewis, ex-elder, whatever. This is a church that seeks to honor and glorify Christ, not our own belly. So the first thing is that we're to be wise to what is good. And the second thing that we see is we're to be innocent to what is evil. We're not even to tolerate it. We're to stay away from it. We're not to let false teachers have free reign here. This is one of the reasons why one of the qualifications for an elder is that they have to be able to teach. This doesn't mean that elders need to be good teachers. 
What this means is that the elders can handle the Word of God, that they are doctrinally sound. And the reason that is important is because they are the ones that are charged with protecting the sheep, with standing on the front lines as people and ideas are coming in and out of the church, that they are the ones that kind of help filter what is, what is gospel, what is biblical, what is God-honoring, and what is not. Now, I thought about it and could have preached a sermon that was very doom and gloom and uh, this sort of thing. And I, because I imagine as Paul is writing this, um, as he said two times in this letter, your, your faith is, is known, your obedience, it is good, and it is known to all. Then as he comes to this warning, that almost like there's an, oh no, will we survive? And so Paul turns, and, and I just want to point out a couple of things here in verse 20. So, so this warning shouldn't lead us to fear and anxiety. And Paul ends with, notice, notice he ends on a note of hope and encouragement. Let's look at verse 20. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So the first thing that we see here is that by Paul calling God the God of peace, what he is saying is that there will be a day when there are no more divisions. There will be a day when there is no more false gospel. There will be a day when you don't have to be on the lookout for those who are rising up in and among you to try and lead you astray. That day is coming. Rejoice in that. The other thing that's here is that as he's saying the God of peace, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Notice that God is the subject. God is the actor here. And so one of the things that's very important is that we don't have to depend on our own intellect. We don't have to depend on our own strength. We don't have to depend upon our own resources. What we have to depend on is that God will do this. And He has given us tools. He has given us structures. And if we follow those, He will help us. And again, the victory will one day be ours. And we know, we know how God, notice the the tense of the verb I'm using here. We notice how God has done it. These words, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, should take us back again to Genesis chapter 3.15 where God is telling Eve that one day, one day, your offspring will crush the serpent. And so what's, what we need to know here and what, Paul is telling us, Paul is telling us that our ultimate enemy, you may say, wait a minute, Lewis. Here it's talking about Satan. It was talking about false teachers. What Paul is doing is that he's drawing that proper line and saying, listen, church, one day Satan and all of his tactics, false teachers, heresy, one day all of that stuff will be crushed. And what Paul is telling told us through this gospel is that that defeat is sure and it's sure because God has sent his son and when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave he reigns victorious over sin death and Satan his doom is sure our problem is as Hodge has said is that Satan is a defeated foe on a chain and he's allowed a little room but Brothers and sisters, be sure. Be sure. His doom is sure. It is accomplished. 
and he will, he is, and will be finally defeated. And notice lastly this. Notice it doesn't say, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. You notice that? What Paul is telling us is that if we're in Christ, if we're in Christ, if we're a Christian, then as Christ, the victor over Satan, crushes his head, puts his foot on the neck of Satan, that you and I, in our union with Christ, are victorious over Satan as well, and we stand victorious. So, be encouraged, church. Be encouraged. Until that day, God has given us His promise, which will stand. God has given us His word, which will guide us and and lead us in every circumstance. And God has given us His spirit, which will lead us and guide us in the way that we should go. And will help us in these times of false teachers to be able to discern what's true and what's not. Let's pray.